0: This is a book bonus episode of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show wanted to give you a quick reminder about a survey we still have going on. That is at uh, wetflyswing.com slash survey2. That's uh, S-U-R-V-E-Y and the number two. In today's episode, I chat with, again, Devin Olson, this time to talk about his new book, Tactical Fly Fishing. We talk about some of the highlights of the book and break down each chapter in a super, super brief way. Devin uh, was on back in episode 43 and is still one of our most popular episodes to date. If you want to up your game with Euro-nymphing and tactical fly fishing, uh, then this uh, is something you want to listen to today. Don't miss this one as Devin tells us about a new video resource he also has these working on here in 2019. So without further ado, here's Devin Olson. How's it going, Devin? Fine. Thanks, Dave. Good to have you back on you are my first guest that I've had on a second time, so this is a pretty oh, wow. uh <laughs> pretty uh pretty big I'm so show privileged. here yeah yeah no I'm excited uh we you have a new book that's out so i'm I'm always excited to share some some new resources uh to the people that listen out there and I know from the from the looks of the the numbers on the first uh, episode we did um you know, I think it was one of my biggest episodes at the time. It was episode forty-three. So, if uh, anybody wanted to listen to that, it was a good one. We jumped into kind of what you do, euro nymphing, and a lot of the tactical stuff we'll, we'll probably talk about today here. But yeah, I just want to dig in today specifically for this little bit of a bonus episode, uh, just on the new book, and just go generally into some you know things that people can look for in it. And um, you, you ready to get started then? Sure. So. Um, yeah, I just have a couple of questions I want to start off with, um, before we jump into maybe some of the chapter information and some of the stuff you cover here. Um, but the first thing, I guess, your own nymphing is a big, um, a big topic that definitely gets a lot of play and people are interested. But this book is more than just nymphing, right? I mean, this is your, your brand is really tactical. So can you explain just generally for somebody who maybe hasn't read it yet or seen the book, what it is all, what it's all about?
1: Well, the, the basic premise behind the book is that we as competitors, when we show up to a river, it uh, may be a river we've never fished before, um, and we have a half an hour to scout the bead of water that we've been we've drawn. And a bead of water is just usually a piece of water that's 80 to a couple hundred yards long. And our session uh, is three hours, and we're, we're fishing that piece of water for three hours. And so we have to come up with a plan and in 30 minutes to rig all the rods that we might need for it and then decide specifically how we're going to target that piece of water to try and maximize the the fish that we get out of it. Uh so we we kind of go through a you know a, a scouting plan through our head uh trying to decide what the best techniques might, might be, what the the best way to spend our time is. And so the the book is about bringing some of that approach um in looking at different water types, different conditions and variables and making the the processes that go through my head. When I look at that available for everyday anglers, so they can maybe break out of the mold of just doing the same thing that they do all the time because it's what they always do, but, but think about it in a more analytical way and try and, uh, increase their success and their enjoyment on the water.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That uh, definitely, I think in a nutshell, that's what it's all about. It's definitely a little bit different take than just, uh, Heading onto the river, you know, and just just jumping in, casting, really taking your time and analyzing that little, you know, the beat or the the reach of stream you're going to fish. Um, and just to, to note here, this will all be in the show notes at uh, wetflyswing.com/tactical. We'll have a link to the stuff we're talking about here. But it's uh, it's tactical fly fishing lessons learned from competition for all anglers. Yep. And um, yeah, so maybe we can just jump in a little bit to I think breaking it down by chapters might be a cool way to. You know, look at it. Um, but before we get into chapter one, um, can you talk about how this might be different? Uh, you know, than some other, you know, whether you call it euro nymphing or just just generally, because the, there is some stuff out there, some other people doing it. How, how is your your take different?
1: Well, um, first of all, it's not just a euro nymphing book. Uh, there is certainly a, a big focus on that in there, but uh, I share a lot of uh, rigs and tactics from other methods that I employ all the time. In fact, uh, when I look back at all the competitions I've done over the years, world championships, nationals, regionals, everything, um, I can't think of one where I've done well, where I just Euro for every fish. I mean, Hmm. most of the time there's a lot of other techniques that are in there. And so they're, they're there in the book as well. Uh, but also I would say, one of the, the bigger differences between maybe my my book or my take and others is just simply I've had the opportunity to fish with a lot of incredible world champions and, and higher high level competitors over the last few years. And um, so I've boiled down a lot of what I've learned from them as well uh, in their rigs and their approaches. And it's had an effect on the way that I fish the river. And uh, I try and bring that to the book. And then uh, also we, we may get into it, but, um, the, I, I have a lot of case studies in the book too, where we go through a sequence where we pick a piece of water that's of a certain water type. And I try and implement all the things which I talk about in the rest of the book in diagrams and photos and, and illustrate how to apply it and where it was, you know, what things were and were not successful.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. I was going to touch on that, but, uh, some of the case studies. And yeah, the, I mean, the, the book is loaded with some not only good information, but some really cool pictures and stuff. Did all, like the photos from this, were they, did a, a lot of those from you or just where all the pics come from?
1: Yeah, I, I did probably 98% of the photos,
0: 95. Hmm. Nice. Okay. So, and did I hear a little uh, ki- uh, kitty cat there? Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. You got a little uh, a cat. Got uh, a... Sorry, cop cat it's your shop. sitting cat? in our shop. Yep. And, uh, so he was of course taking
1: a nap on the, the, uh, seat next to me. But once you started talking, he perked up and wanted to come over and sit oh, by perfect. the
0: uh, <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. My, my girls, they've been on me to get a cat. So I've been, I've been holding off, but I think maybe we might be coming close to getting one as well. So yeah, <laughs> cats are cool. Okay. Um, let's jump into the, uh, let's just start with chapter one and, and really like you talked about making a plan. Um, and I, I just want to highlight, we can't cover on everything, but you talk about how you make a plan when you come up to the, the stream, you're fishing. But how do you avoid, you know, one of those things you talk about is spooking fish. If you had to say a, a tip that you, you cover here about how to avoid spooking, what would you say is a good one?
1: Oh, let, let's, let's maybe just cover a couple things there. Um, number one, I always look and see if uh, if there's a specific area of the river that I'm targeting or that I'm trying oh. to spot fish or something like that. I always try and uh, see whether I can see the bottom there before I'm going to get even with it or, or uh, perpendicular to it. So if I can see the bottom clearly, I uh, assume that any fish that might be there can see me clearly too. So if, those, uh, if that's the, the situation, then I usually try and uh, either stay downstream or um, I use some sort of obstruction to hide me. So that could be... It could be something as simple as uh, positioning myself in the stream. So there's heavy water that has a lot of waveforms that obscure the fish's view of me uh, and positioning that water in between me and the fish. Or it could be something like uh, using a bush or a tree or a boulder to either hide behind or actually to put myself in front of to pick up my silhouette so that I'm not Uh, as
0: obvious to the fish. Gotcha. Yeah. And so, and fish typically, I mean, if you're standing directly behind them, they definitely can't see you at all. But if you're, if you're on the side a little bit, they can potentially see you even if you're behind them. But do you find that, um, there are situations where you're, I mean, where would you not be hiding behind something, but be out, you know, but be behind a fish. Do you find you can still do that and make a cast without spooking it?
1: Um, oh yeah. I mean, as long as, um, uh, well, when you're urine, a lot of times you're directly across from the fish. And so over time you get used to how close you can get to the fish without spooking them, just simply based on when you do and don't catch fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, that's something that really only comes with experience and it's different depending upon the water clarity and the velocity and all sorts of things like that. Right. But, um, so I just kind of, I try and live by that rule where I've, if I can see the bottom clearly, I'm going to use some sort of approach that hides me from the fish. Um, and in addition to those approaches that I just talked about, I also might just kneel. Right. Uh, So in, in a lot of tournaments where I've been fishing water, that's very, very clear. Um, I'll wear knee pads the whole time and, I often have spent two and a half, three hours straight fishing from my knees <laughs> to try and stay low, stay below the fish's view and get close to them so that I can uh, minimize the amount of line uh, management that I have to do and, and try and get as close to the fish as possible so that I get better drifts and better mm-hmm. and angles. Um, so I'm always keeping that in mind. And I think if most people just thought a little bit more about whether if you know if they can see the the area they're targeting clearly then thinking around them to um you know try and stay out of that fish's view and for a lot of people you know that straight upstream approach uh, might work but it's also a more difficult way to get a good drift or right. to drags for a lot of people so mm-hmm. then they might you know want to use some other sort of approach to try and hide themselves or at least appear less threatening to the
0: fish and that's gotcha. what all
1: those basic approaches i use are, are meant to do
0: yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And that, yeah, I did notice in the book, you had a, a, a some sort of a kind of a lower leg uh, pad is it, was that a product you had or something you made that goes over your waders?
1: Yeah. So that one I picked up out of Europe, I've actually stopped using it when that one. Cause it, it just doesn't have much padding. Um, yeah. I took a few nasty knocks to my uh, kneecap with it, but, um, most of the time I've just used like BMX pads. Oh, yeah? So they have, um, pads out there that will have both, a you know, a knee, knee cup for your knee to go on and then shin shin guards Uh that go all the way down and sometimes um you have to do a little bit of sizing trickery with some added velcro and things like that but uh because once those things get wet the straps tend to stretch out gotcha (laughs) but uh, if you're willing to do a little bit of work to get them to fit to you right, that, that's been the best
0: uh, way to go for for me. Oh, cool! And is there a photo of you wearing that stuff, the 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 guard, shin guards and stuff?
1: Mm, well, there's that one photo in the book. But yeah, that's that would be the, about the only one gotcha. I can think of off the bat.
0: Yeah, because it sounds pretty for somebody that hasn't seen it. You know, waiters, you got shin guards. You're looking like you're going into you know a mission. This is a, the like the real deal.
1: Yeah. Well, that the funny thing is the original pairs that we used to wear were. Uh, they were tactical shin guards for SWAT teams.
0: Exactly. <laughs> That's what I was picturing. That's cool. Okay. Um, well, let's move on quickly. We're not going to be able to get all uh, to all the chapters here, but, um, you know, chapter two, you talk about rigging and, you know, I don't know if maybe you talk about like the most common question you get from people as far as rigging.
1: Well, um, I think what it boils down to is I, I tend to take the approach of having the, the, absolute best rig that i want for any given technique in any given situation so i'm the kind of guy that's more of a splitter rather than a lumper so I'll, I'll i'll bring you know two three rods on the river with me all the time just to make sure that i have exactly what i want and that way i don't have to constantly re-rig but um i realize from most of the people that talk to me that that's not the approach that that most anglers out there want so i also offer some rigging in there for kind of, uh, closer to try and do it all type rigs, like the modular Euro, Euro nymphing leader, which, uh, can allow people to Euro nymph fish a dry dropper and streamer fish pretty much all with the same leader with a couple simple changes. Um, so there's a little bit of everything for everybody in that chapter. There's some, um, there are some very specific formulas for different nymphing leaders that I've used for, um, Uh, very you know like a micro thin leader where I want the absolute least amount of sag possible the best uh, strike detection the best radius that I can euronympf away but there's then also those uh, that modular leader so I can fish a dry dropper but still on a euro leader to uh, decrease the sag and high stick further away and then I also have um, a dry fly leader formula that I use for most of my longer distance kind of techie flat water rising type dry fly fishing. Um it's a formula that uh that one is of Spanish origin. I got it from a Spanish competitor and I've I've used a lot and I use a very similar formula now that's kind of blended that one with a bunch of others. Um mm-hmm. but there's a little bit of everything in there for for people who maybe want to take it beyond just, you know, picking something off the shelf and trying to make it work. But uh, hopefully by playing around with some of the rigs, they can understand a little more how each type of rig performs and choose what's best for them for any given water type.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And, uh, So uh, as I noted, uh, episode 43, if anybody wanted to go a little bit deeper, we definitely break down some of this. Uh, And for somebody who maybe is listening that doesn't necessarily, maybe isn't going to pick up the book right away, is there another resource you'd recommend either online or something else out there where they can maybe, you mentioned the modular and some other, uh, you know, uh, names of things that they can kind of learn a little more about this.
1: Yeah. So um, I have, uh, I have uh, a blog post where I talk about the modular leader, uh, on my blog at tacticalflyfisher.com. We also have, uh, two instructional videos out, which we may have talked about in the last Mm -hmm. podcast. Um, they're both, one's called modern nymphing, European inspired techniques. And then the other is called modern nymphing elevated, uh, beyond the basics. And so in the first one, um, it just, we just give a couple of basic Euro nymphing formulas. And then in the second one, we talk about the micro thin leader and the modular European nymphing leader that are mm-hmm. also in the book.
0: Okay. And um, I want to jump into, you know, a few of the other chapters where you get into more of the, you know, pocket water riffles and breaking out the different types of uh, habitat units. But um, chapter three talks about Euro nymphing. What, what do you think if you just had to tell somebody, what is the big advantage or, you know, the benefit of Euro nymphing over just typical, uh, any other type of nymphing?
1: Well, um, there's a, there's a really good clip that we have on YouTube. If you haven't seen either of our videos, I, I would say the best description would be from that YouTube clip where we can, we do a pro-con comparison of, of indicator nymphing and euro nymphing. But really, a lot of what it boils down to is you get better strike detection, uh, a lot of times better drifts, um, because you aren't relying on some sort of floating device to be your mediator in between you and your flies. You are the person. You are the the determinant of what your flies do under the water. So um, you're not. You don't have a, an indicator or a suspension device that uh, is holding your flies up, but also is dictating the speed at which they go, and then uh, trying to relay strike information back to you. Uh, with euro nymphing, you have a little bit more of a, a direct line of contact to your flies. Um, the most of the time, unless you're fishing. Uh, straight upstream and greasing your cider, which is your own Mm -hmm. version of an indicator. Unless you're doing that, most of the time your cider and your whole leader is off the water and all that's penetrating through the water is just tippet. And Mm -hmm. when you have thin tippet going through the water, there's a lot less drag. Um, Yep in the system than having a, an indicator in the surface that kind of acts like a kite right. and just gets pulled wherever that surface current is going. So instead you can have that line of contact to your flies down, you know, uh, in the boundary layer in the bottom, near the bottom where most of the fish are going to be. And you can then control the speed at which they, they drift and, and have uh, much more direct strike detection because there's a lot less slack in the system as well.
0: Right. Yeah. You know, that all makes sense. So kind of a best tip for somebody, if you just want to say, you know, finding the good holding water or where, where trout hold.
1: Well, um, actually I think the best, the best tips I can give on that come out of, I think it was chapter one. Um, and it, it relates to chapter four, which is all about energy and currents and and why and where trout hold. And that's a short chapter, but, Mm -hmm. but, um, really what it boils down to is trout go through, a bit of a cost benefit analysis. Um, you know, they're not thinking complicated (laughs) processes. We can't anthropomorphize them too much, but, um, but they, you know, go through some sort of internal process that dictates where in the river they, they want to hold based on how much energy they need, how much they can get and, um, where in the river is most profitable for them at that time. So the biggest one that I think is, um, not well understood by most people is trout's relationship to temperature. Mm -hmm. So trout, and and I have a graphic in, in chapter one and I learned more about this uh, when I was back in graduate school during, doing my master's research. Uh, And I was doing some bioenergetics modeling, looking at some Arctic char and essentially I modeled their consumptive demand or their metabolic rate throughout the year based on the water temperature of the, Of the water they were living in. And so I was able to estimate, you know, their caloric demand if they were growing from size A to size B throughout the year, essentially. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're no different than other Salmonids. Um, Most trout have this left skewed bell curve where, um, you know, from about freezing up to 45, 48 degrees, there's just this kind of slow ramp of of increased metabolism that happens, and then pretty much between fifty and sixty-five degrees or so, depending upon the species of trout, they have this the the meat of that bell curve where their metabolic rate, uh, you know, in the middle of that is at its apex. And so, what I uh, usually do is I hit the river, I take a temperature, and um, if it's you know, low on that scale, I'm going to look for trout in any water where they can have energy savings because their metabolic rate is slow enough at that time that they don't really care as much about intaking as much energy, but more conserving it until the the conditions get better. So I'll look for them in slower, deeper water and um, um, the slow sides of seams, anywhere where they can have some cover and some refuge without having to expend much energy because they're just not willing to go and get stuff, but uh as as those temperatures get better or if i see a change from the morning to the the middle of the day or the afternoon that suggests that it's getting closer toward that prime uh middle part of that bell curve or even up on the the ascent then i'm going to look for them in areas where they're going to capitalize on having more food so areas of higher velocity like um riffles uh, pocket water or even just the head of a pool or a, a run where there's faster current coming in and a, a higher volume of water going past that fish per unit of time which is going to bring more food past them hmm. um, and oftentimes simply based on that temperature alone i can make a, a guess you know 75 80 percent of the time which water type I should should hit and then combined with that a little bit about hatch activity and or pay attention at least and observe um, while you're out on the water when hatches are and are not occurring, then uh, th- those two variables most of the time determine where fish are going to be.
0: So chapter, you know, chapters five, six, seven, you kind of get into pocket water riffles and then runs and and glides in there. One one question I had on that. Um, so a run versus a glide, can you explain uh, the, the difference between the two?
1: Well, they're kind of fluid in that one can become the other depending upon the water flow that you're at. (laughs) But really the only difference is, um, two things, velocity, and then also the, the surface of the river. So in a glide, it's usually a little bit slower and the surface is usually pretty smooth. So there's not a lot of turbulence or wave forms on, on top of the river. Um, and a glide can then become a run if, if, Either the velocity gets a little bit higher, or and uh, the turbulence then increases, so you you get those waveforms on top. So, gotcha. uh, That's that's really the only difference. Yeah. yeah.
0: So the gradient is probably uh like where a pool has a zero percent gradient, the gradient of a run and glide is about the same. Still less than one percent, pretty low. But it's just yeah, the volume or maybe would a um, structure? I guess that that's gonna would that change whether it's a runner or glide? Yeah.
1: So and in fact, a lot of times that's what separates the two and keeps a run being a run is if you have some sort of, you know, rocky structure or, or woody structure or whatever that pinches some water from the bank uh, and constricts the flow that'll create turbulence. That'll create, you know, increased velocity somewhere across that, that channel and pretty much take a glide from being a glide into being a run. Um, but if, but most glides don't have a lot of structure, and that's what really what makes them difficult for most people to fish. Well, for anybody to fish, really, is they they don't have as many of those features that say, "Hey, there's going to be a fish here." Let's right. concentrate our effort. They're they're fairly uniform, and there's uh, they, they could the fish could literally be anywhere in, in them most of the time, um, which is what makes them you know a cha- challenging water type for most of us to try and
0: target. I want to go to chapter ten, bankside. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you mean by bankside and maybe if, um, you know, and maybe a tip or two as far as, and may, and also maybe just talk about how much of the time are you fishing bankside uh, versus the other types of water?
1: Okay. Well, bankside lies, um, that whole chapter is dedicated simply to finding spots along the bank where fish hold. And the thing about bankside lies is they have um, a lot of of uh criteria that really make them attractive places for for trout to be Um, especially if you're in a brown trout river brown trout tend to love hugging banks because banks will have a lot of times overhanging branches or you know some sort of cover that makes fish feel safe but they also have slowed flow um from both the bottom of the river and from that vertical uptick on the bank of the river so you can get you know slow flow from two directions and it really makes those spots uh low in velocity but with ready access to food that's getting uh moved by pretty quickly uh, you know just off the bank wherever the, that seam of faster water occurs so um fish can get in there save a lot of energy feel safe and comfortable because they they can hide under something really quick but they still have ready access to food. Yeah. So those, the you know, eddies are a good example. But there's lots of other um, examples where simply just a, a slower seam on the backside of that would be a bankside lie.
0: Gotcha. Um,
1: and really, most of the time, it, it, it all depends upon the river. It's funny. Um, so my my local river here, the Provo. Uh, interestingly, there's uh, two famous kind of sections of it, the middle provo and the and the, the lower provo. And I would say that on the lower provo, um, you know, almost there's so many people that just focus on nymphing the kind of the juicy looking bits in the middle of the river. But when I go and fish there on my own, I focus a lot on the bankside lies on that piece of water. There's all sorts of grounds that just that hug the The banks on in that river and the the funny thing is that's a stretch where you do actually get rainbows and brown trout um that co-occur they they, uh, they're both there and you'll almost never catch a rainbow on the bank they're Hmm. gonna be all out in that main flow trying to focus on eating more food um whereas the browns are more a little bit about energy conservation and and safety um so they'll be all tucked up on the bank but I fish a lot on the bank in that river yet. If you go upstream to the next tailwater on the middle Provo, I don't know why, um, that they are very different character rivers. Um, but there aren't as many fish that just hug super tight to the bank there as there are on the middle Provo. So I spend a lot more of my time fishing the more obvious, you know, pieces of holding water that are either just off the bank or in the middle of the river on that, that piece of water. So it, Depending upon where you live, you may get fish that only want to be on the bank. You may also get a river where those lies aren't that important. And it may change as the water levels go up and down. Um, Certainly, as the water levels go up and up and up, uh, those bankside lies become more and more important uh, because fish are trying to get out of that main flow where it's just too fast for them to hold. Hmm. Um, But as the water level goes down,
0: you know, they may seek those refuge lies in the middle of the river. You know, zero to 10 feet out from the bank versus 10 to 30 feet out. What percentage of time are you finding you catch more fish or, you know, if you had to say a percentage wise.
1: Mm. Boy, that's an, like I said, that's another tough question to answer.
0: just, just really depends on the water. On the
1: but, uh, I will say that if you're on a brown trout river and there's a lot of bank side structure, like, You know trees and and overhanging stuff like that Mm -hmm. i would say i don't know maybe at least half of the time most of my fish are coming within five feet of the bank yep um or less a lot of times more like you know six inches to three feet off the bank Mm -hmm. whereas um if you have a, a channel form where maybe there's not a lot, let, let's say you had some channelization or, you know, someone chopped the trees down or whatever, and it's kind of a more open river or a larger river, um, then there might be, you know, more more fish that you're going to find in the middle. Mm. Um, and it, again, it just all depends sure. on the fish. But a lot of times your biggest fish are going to be uh, on those banks. And I think in the one case study that I have in that bank, or at the end of that bankside uh, lie chapter, you know, we'd been fishing a small stream all day long, and um, right before I target some bankside lies, we we sight fish to some fish in the middle flow there, and we we actually caught more fish there. Uh, we caught I don't know five or six fish out of the middle of that flow, most of them being rainbows, but the two biggest fish that I got in that case study were right on the bank under overhanging branches, and they were both. Really big browns that were doing the typical brown trout thing and hiding where they felt safe.
0: <laughs> Any other uh, changes or new fly patterns or things you want to talk about? Um, you know, kind of your go-to patterns. Well,
1: um, I have uh, all of my my patterns that are now uh, in the Umqua catalog are in there. So the blowtorch, the light bright Paragon, mm-hmm. the front end loader Caddis, and the stragglestone. stone. Um, but I also uh, overall, I guess when most people um, turn to that fly chapter, the first thing they'll notice is that most of the flies are really quite simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a lot of added bells and whistles and intricacies to those flies. I really, the at you know this point in my fly fishing career, I've backed off of tying most of my flies that way. Whereas early on in my you know for the first ten years. 12 years whatever that I was tying I was very focused on imitation and and you know being anatomically correct with whatever the hatches were and all that and as I've uh competed for the last you know 13 years now I guess it's been um my philosophy has moved much more away from that and towards attraction and um general impressionistic patterns and things like that I still have some imitative
0: patterns um, yeah Gotcha. Uh, so, Yep. Yeah.
1: But, uh, overall you'll find simple patterns that are very quick to tie compared to many that are available out there. Um, but which get the job done as well or better than any of the more complicated patterns. And one of the main reasons for that is as a competitor, especially when you start getting into Euro nymphing, uh, your flies become your split shot. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you don't, want to have to tie a fly that takes 10 minutes because you might need to tie it in three sizes and four or five of each right or, or at least three weights three bead sizes and then four or five of each so uh if you're tying a whole bunch of you know complicated nymphs that take you forever to tie not only are you not going to be willing to fish them in tight spots where you might lose them but but the night before a tournament or something you, you just can't simply tie that many of them and get all to all the flies on your list and then get a decent night's sleep so that you <laughs> can wake up and fish well the next day. So, um, and I've fished with so many competitors that, uh, literally have like two or three materials on a hook and are, are just trashing people with these very simple flies that I, I've backed off of feeling like my, my flies need a lot of those extra things. Yeah. So I don't put anything in my flies that I don't deem necessary. If it's there, it's there for a reason. But there's not anything additional, um, and what I have there has has fished well in all sorts of competitions and other rivers and times and places for me, kind of across the planet at this point. <laughs> um, so I have a lot of confidence in them. And there's you know, you know there's a lot of nymphs in there, but there's also some dry flies and streamers that have been good performers for me as well.
0: Yeah, and I was just looking at the the light bright Peridigon is. Um, it's got, you know, a typical Roy really thin, you know, body, but it's got a little spot. I guess that's the, um, the wing case, right? A little nail, black nail polish on, on the mm-hmm. back. Is that, um, you know, little thing, and it, it's got a hot spot on it as well with the thread, but do you find that little wing case, little things like that? I mean, that's definitely an added bonus that you don't necessarily have to have. Yeah. And, you, and yeah.
1: I'll admit that, uh, I've gone back and forth on that a lot myself. Um, I think there's maybe been some times where, Uh, If nothing else, it made me feel like it was fishing better, even if it didn't. That's right, confidence. Yeah, so, but uh, I've also, uh, well, for instance, when we were in Italy at the World Championships uh, back in September, I was tying that specific pattern a bunch, uh, and I needed it in some new sizes, or at least new weights that I didn't really have a lot of. Oh, yeah. You know, like midnight the night before session one or session two or whatever, Uh, and I was like, uh, I'm not waiting to put this wing case on. So I just whipped up a bunch without it and I still caught fish with them. So it's one of those things that, yeah, you you know, test on your own and see if it makes a difference to you or not. If it doesn't do it without it and I'm sure you're going to be just fine.
0: Before, uh, when we had our interview, I asked you, you know, what you had going on the next six months or so, anything new you want to touch on here? You got the book, it's out. Anything else now coming up? Yeah,
1: so um, we're going to be shooting another instructional film this year. So we have the two European nymphing specific ones, but we're in the process, uh, at this point of, um, setting our first start dates for, uh, shooting another one. It's going to be a, a video that follows a little more of uh, the book, um, mm-hmm. and trying to take, uh, an on the water, Kind of case study of different water types approach. I think um, not just a Euro nymphing focus, but hey, here's a piece of water. How should you fish it? That just like the book, but in, in video format. So we're gonna be doing that, and uh, also looking at uh, scheduling some uh, some fun trips this summer. Um, one thing that may be coming up is a, a little Golden Dorado trip to Bolivia. Mm-hmm. We'll see yes. if it happens or not. But yeah. uh, but that's uh, what's immediately on the horizon. Other than I got a lot of speaking
0: at uh, clubs between now and the summer to nice. get the word out about the book yeah yeah that's what you need you guys need to do with the uh the the fishing you know the championships is head out and do some saltwater stuff mix it up a little bit go for some yeah, well uh, <laughs> they,
1: they do have a, a saltwater uh format as well but at least what i've competed in is only the,
0: oh, okay. the water fishing end of things cool yeah i also heard um Oh, gosh, I'm drunk. I, I heard recently they have a master's division of USA yep. Fife, which I didn't even yeah, know Yeah, so about. that's
1: that's going on right now. In fact, I think the tournament finishes today. Um, So that, that's the 50 years and older division. And oh, okay. It's yep. going on down in uh, South Africa at the moment.
0: That's cool. Yeah, I had uh, Jeff Curry. I think Jeff's down there right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we, yep. we, we chatted a bit, and he, he uh, obviously has a, a crazy uh, life and all the stuff he's done. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, and I've got somebody, Russell, I think is going to come on and, and chat. I mean, definitely it seems like we've talked about this before, but there's a lot of people that don't, maybe you've never even heard of the USA fly fishing, but it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff you have going on and, and things are mixing up. I mean, how long has the master's program been going? You
1: no, know, I think this is maybe the fourth or fifth. Yeah. That's world championship cool. for the master's division so it's a it's you know a fairly recent thing yeah the uh but there's also the youth world championships and the then just like the adult world championships which is what i fish in gotcha. and the youth worlds i think has been going on since 97 somewhere around in there and then the adult worlds that's been back since uh, 83 somewhere around in there i'd have to yeah yeah i will I have, have, have a Math, i'm gonna but.
0: i'm gonna cover it a little more and go um i have we talked a little bit about the history and stuff but i'll, I'll cover that on the show um, later but um yeah uh Devin, just want to thank you for coming on you know the book um tactical fly fishing lessons learned from competition for all anglers is, is out like, like you said it's in. what would be a good place if somebody wanted to grab a copy
1: so i have uh copies on my website at tacticalflyfisher.com and those copies are all uh autographed as well and then other than that you can find it on, uh, online and all the typical book selling places. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah. It's out there. Okay. Um, anything else you want to touch on? I mean, we kind of just skim through everything. Um, but I don't know if I miss anything important or maybe just give us your, uh, your, you know, your best pitch for the book.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say if, if I had to boil it down to one single message, um, that the book is about, uh, one of the things that, that makes me sad, I think for a lot of anglers is that they're so, um, you know, we all have limited fishing time, right? And so we want to make the most of it. So most anglers that I meet, they, they go out and they do the same thing over and over because it's what worked for them last time. But there's really just no learning or growth involved in that situation. And so then if they go take a trip to someplace that's unfamiliar, then sometimes it feels like they're a little bit lost, but the book is all about, um, letting, letting the water dictate the methods and the techniques and the rigs you fish and not just marrying yourself to one rig and letting that dictate the water you fish. So um, I guess the, the challenge would be t- for me to, to those who end up reading the book to, to break out of their comfort zone, break out of their mold a little bit and to find ways to fish all of the river in front of them that's going to hold water or a hold trout at any given time. Um, and my, my goal in the book is to give you strategies to, to capitalize on that and and not just to have you keep going back to the same pool on the same run or, you know, whatever stretch that, uh, that you're comfortable with, but break, break you out of your mold and, and really find some success in unexpected ways and, and a lot of ways that help you grow more as an angler.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's going to be really useful. It's, I uh, definitely had, um, you know, a couple of close friends and some people out in the audience that. You know after listening to our first episode we did in '43, they were like, Man, that's a game changer! You know, totally changed. Well, some of them realized they were doing things wrong, and they just, you know, so people are jacked about getting out this spring and, and trying some of these new methods. So, um, so yeah, Devin, just want to thank you again for coming on. And you know, the second guest, my first time, second timer. So, I hopefully, you know, if I'm out there long enough, we'll have you on for a third time. But, uh, just, just want to thank you for the book and coming on again. All right, thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. All right, you bet. See ya. So, well, there you go if you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash tactical and uh just want to again remind you that we have the survey going on and uh, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash survey two that'd be great to uh hopefully we'll be wrapping this one up soon so as we can get uh, 200 responses is what we're uh we're going for here so um and a reminder if you uh want to subscribe on uh, via text just uh uh just text wfs to 31996 thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today i'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to maybe see you on the river or online